stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. today to have with us uh, Professor Dorian Abbott from the University of Chicago, one of my alma maters, so I'm particularly excited to have him uh, with us uh, here today. Uh, Professor Abbott is an associate professor in the Department of Geophysical Sciences uh, at UFC, and he is here because of, well, let's let him tell the story. What happened, uh, you were invited to give a lecture, uh, Professor Abbott, at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technologies, as I understand. Uh, what was the lecture going to be about, and why? What led to your disinvitation? So the lecture was going to be about uh, the climate of planets orbiting different stars, okay. which we call exoplanets, and which ones could host life. Okay. Uh, and and is this a controversial topic uh, in, in any sort of socially controversial way? I mean, this is. No. This isn't climate change. This is climate on non-Earth planets, I guess. No, and that shouldn't, but that shouldn't matter either, right? Like at university, it shouldn't matter whether someone considers a topic controversial. Sure. Uh, but this was not just a lecture. It was the Karlstrom Lecture, okay. which is sort of a big honorary lecture in the field. And in the field of geophysical sciences? Yeah. Okay. And so uh, it, it's sort of like this sort of thing you can, you know, put on your CV and, you know, it's an important honor in the field. Sure. And so I was invited to give this, but last summer I had written an article in Newsweek, an op-ed with my colleague Ivan Marinovich. Who's a professor at Stanford, right. Yeah. Exactly. And he's a game theorist uh, in, in the business school. And we had argued that there are lots of problems with diversity equity and inclusion programs, and in particular that they're leading to discrimination against uh, certain groups of people. And so we propose an alternative called merit, fairness, and equality, which would, uh, you know, make choices for admissions, hiring, and promotion based uh, simply on merit, uh, and try to eliminate discrimination, but not try to uh, work towards quotas of different groups. Sure. And I, I saw on your, on your website at UFC, it says, I practice fair admissions, I select students and postdocs on the basis of scientific ability and promise, and I do not discriminate against any applicant based on anything else. I encourage freedom of expression and the creative exploration of ideas in my group. Well, that, that, that sounds like what you would expect to find in a university so that's, environment. That's uh, uh, this word controversial, yes. which is used now as a way to dismiss ideas that you don't like, that's a very controversial thing to write. And I wrote that on there because a lot of people were writing on their, uh, on their faculty websites things about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you know, I'm trying to encourage this or that group. And so I, right. I thought I would just write, you know, I want to encourage everyone, you know, I, I have in the past worked, and I do now, with people of all races, men sure. and women, 
people with different sexual orientations, religious. It, it doesn't matter to me. I want to talk about science when we're in there. Well, you say you practice fair admissions. Presumably that means you're not discriminating based on gender or race exactly. or sexual orientation. Yeah. You know, whoever, you know, uh, I'm, I'm choosing students and postdocs based on their scientific ability, my, the best, as best I can assess it. Of course, it's difficult to assess someone's scientific ability uh, in the future based on an application. Sure. Uh, it's not something that you can predict with 100% fidelity, but you can, there are metrics that we can use to do this, and there's a whole psychological literature on how to do this effectively, and it's mostly being ignored. For example, the best predictor of success uh, in in uh, undergraduate and graduate education is generally uh, a test scores. Okay. And those standardized are tests standardized or? test uh-huh. scores, and those are being eliminated because people don't like you know, I guess what. The data that they generate? Exactly. They don't yeah. like the data they generate, but that doesn't mean it's not an effective way to select the most meritorious students. Right. So uh, I take it that you were disinvited from the lecture uh, at, at MIT. How did that come about? Was it was it professors at MIT who were... No. Uh, or, so or, actually, let me take one step back. Yeah. Who, who invited you to give the John Carlson lecture at MIT? Is that something that's decided by the faculty there? Yes. Or? Yeah. So Dan Rothman and Kara Emanuel are faculty there, and they're the, I don't know exactly the internal selection mechanism, but they're the ones who contacted me and invited me. Sure. And So the students aren't involved in selecting as far as I know, the students this are not prestigious involved. lecture. But it's important for people to understand that there's there's sort of an algorithm that's followed in cases like this. And so... What happens is the, the political activists, they use Twitter as a force multiplier. So there's a small number of them typically, and, and they have different tactics that are used. And so you can see what happened at Yale recently, at Yale Law School, sure. uh, where the tactic was to just cause disruption. And, and so essentially what happens is they'll go on Twitter and they'll say, we're mad about this, you know fix this. That's the sort of language that's used. MIT, fix this. Right. Okay? And then the threat Rescind that's... this invitation. Right. That's what fix this means. The threat right. that's sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, is we're going to show up and we're going to cause a scene. You know, we're going to yell and we're going to stop this guy from speaking. And everyone's going to be uncomfortable. All your donors are going to be uncomfortable. That, that's sort of what's going on. That's a threat that's being made. And it's a force multiplier because... It, it's usually a small number of people who are doing this. So in my case, it was maybe a dozen people on Twitter. Uh, but it, it gets people uncomfortable and nervous. And the people, there's always some decision maker. And that decision maker, if you can put enough pressure on him, he's usually some nerd who's just not used to dealing with a situation like this. He doesn't, sure. maybe in his whole life, he's never had people yelling at him. And all of a sudden, it, you know, we're not talking about, like, the president of the United States or, you know, some politician who's used to these kind of tactics. Right. This is a department chairman or, or, or a, a bureaucrat within the university administration yeah. making these decisions. And they, they get scared. And they're like, what, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, if, how can I make this problem go away as fast as possible? And that seems to be what happened. Sure. And so the, uh, uh, you're, you're disinvited. How does that conversation come about? Do they... Well, do they, so do I they knew, tell you you're being disinvited because there's been a student protest and 12 people on Twitter have, have suggested that uh, they're going to 
you know, make a ruckus if, if yeah. You go so I mean, how this. how it happened was the department chair, you know, like he he said he wanted to talk to me on the phone. Okay, so I knew that there was this stuff going on. Sure. So it was after they announced it, this stuff started on Twitter, and a week later he said he wants to talk to me on the phone. So I thought he was going to say, look, you know, we really value academic freedom at MIT, and we know that there are these people causing problems and we've explained to them that if they disrupt your lecture they face the following consequences but it may be rowdy it could be rowdy yeah. and you know this you know just just be ready for it uh, but you know we're 100 percent behind you we know that your uh the opinions you've given are uh you know that they're you're right it's your right to express those opinions on this issue and it doesn't influence uh your scientific work our evaluation of your scientific work or the value of the scientific lecture that you're going to give, which has nothing to do with, with this issue. Right. You weren't coming to give a lecture on your Newsweek. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course I wasn't, but even if I was, if, even if I were that it wouldn't have been appropriate to cancel that lecture in sure. an academic context. Yeah. It's important to emphasize that, but no, I wasn't. It was, it was, I was coming to give two scientific lectures. One, this one about uh, climate on, different planets and the other was about planetary dynamics like you know gravitational interactions and it turns out i mean this is kind of an aside but it turns out that there's a one percent probability that mercury's orbit will become unstable in the next five billion years and it will hit another planet or it'll hit the sun and so i was doing some calculations related to that but just weird esoteric nerd stuff and so so i thought that's what he was going to say but and so we had a nice little chat and then he said oh and you know like we decided to cancel the lecture and which had already been delayed once right because of because, because of, COVID. of covid and so i just was kind of like so so in other words you were invited you hadn't at the at the time you were originally invited it sounds like if i'm following this timeline this op-ed had not been written in newsweek at that point no it's so, possible i wouldn't have even been invited well, so that's the that's the issue that we can talk about in a second sure that but keep going. Well, I was just going to say, so then you write the op-ed, then they reschedule the lecture, yeah. then uh, there's this protest uh, led by a small group of, of students, and then the yeah. reaction to that is to take the path of least resistance and, and disinvite you. Yeah, and so, and so when he said that, I was kind of in shock because I just didn't think that that would happen at MIT. Sure. Of all places, you know, like they're supposed to be – and they it's are. They are. They're central, right? I mean, yeah, and they are. Big. And they are. And, and I really respect the science that people are doing there. And actually, I'm going to visit there in a month to give, you know, another a, a lecture that they say that, you know, I, we assume is not going to be canceled this time. Right. Uh, but and the faculty there are doing great research and there's tons of great graduate students there. So I just didn't expect that. And it, and that, that was pretty much how it went down. I just sure. said, as long as you don't tell imply to anyone that I agree with this decision. You know, you, it's your lecture, so I guess you can cancel it. There's a lot of people who support the positions that I've been advocating. There are very few people who are willing to openly say that. So one example that I just would like to highlight is uh, David Romps at Berkeley. After this issue at MIT, he proposed to the other faculty that they should invite me to give the lecture as sort of a statement that, you know, we're, you know, we're a scientific institution, not a political institution, and we'd like to hear what this guy has to say, even if other people disagree with his politics. And, and, and tweak MIT a little bit, too. Why not? 
We'll be right back with Professor Dorian Abbott from the University of Chicago and more on cancel culture on campus. Keep it here on Administrative Static. academic culture that uh, that has led us uh, to this place is this is this something that you have seen brewing for a while is this something when you were a graduate student yourself for example was this was this phenomenon something that was happening on campuses that that you saw in the science at least in the scientific no field? there was nothing like this happening when I was a graduate student uh, now the ideology that's behind it was developing so I was an undergrad from 2000 to 2004, and, you know, this social justice or woke ideology was active in, like, a gender studies department, and I heard people talking about it a little bit, and it was just, like, funny. You know, nobody took it seriously. Right, over here in the geophysical sciences, we're not... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was in physics, and, you know, we were doing real work. And, yeah. you know, we were, it, it was like, okay, I guess they can just do their silly stuff over there, but it won't, they, you know, they're not going to bother us. Right. We'll just do our stuff. They can do their stuff. You know, I, yeah, everyone can stay in their little area and Free, have free fun. to be you and me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and, that, and that, I mean, so I went to school maybe 10 years before you. My experience was, uh, I think the watchword on campus was tolerance. Yeah. And it's just, well, and, and when that word was used, it was typically tolerance of, Fairly, ex- what? Uh, yeah. So I grew up in Kansas. What yeah. where I grew up would have been considered fairly extreme liberal views yeah, yeah. is what we were all being encouraged to tolerate on campus. Yeah. Well, these words of all they don't have the same meaning anymore. There's these funny games being played with words. So, for example, tolerance now means to restrict the expression of people that you think might uh, their expression might bother someone else. That's what's called tolerance now. Mm. And so it, it, it's twisted to mean the exact opposite of what it used to mean. A kind of newspeak. Yeah, but the thing is that then people say it, and then it tricks people, other people who believe in the, in the traditional meaning of tolerance. So all of these words, they do that with diversity, equity, inclusion. It's all being done. So diversity, for example, so this word is being used, but 80% of, politi- of the political spectrum is being excluded. So the, you know, if you look at the typical of the social sciences, say that number 80% is, I didn't just pull that out of a hat. Like th- this is his actual number that the, the faculty in the social sciences is composed of 20% of the political spectrum. There's more people who identify as Marxist than who identify as conservatives, uh, which is a shocking, since 50% of our population identifies as conservatives. There's more right. people identify as Marxists than as conservatives. A center-left liberal is considered right-wing. And so well, under this, the guise of diversity, 80% of the U.S. population is being excluded. Right. And so that all of these words are, are twisted in odd ways. 
Well, excuse the perception on campus. I mean, to come back to the word controversial, something that that is controversial to the uh, the, the particular twenty uh, percent of the population that you're saying is found on campus wouldn't necessarily be controversial if the campus were more uh, representative of the hundred percent of society. Yeah, exactly. And so I think in terms of sort of long term drivers of this you know, academic cancel culture we talk about, probably the most important one is the, um, is the lack of political diversity. And so, you know, I mean, like, for example, do you know what the dispute at Yale was actually about? Why the students were so mad? I, I read a story at the time, but I don't remember now. I know yeah. that, I know that uh, uh, ADF was, had come, right? And I think that there was, there, wasn't there someone from Americans for Separation of Church and State who was also... So it was a discussion. Same discussion. It was a discussion. There were two speakers, both in support of free speech. It was a discussion of free speech. Two speakers. One of them was more from the left, and one was more from the right. The one from the right, my understanding of what the dispute is, has advocated for traditional marriage. Right. And that was it. Has that been was, has been the uh, the, the lead uh, public interest litigation firm pushing. Yeah. So that was that, side of that the was the controversial thing right now you know in most of the country people might disagree on that but that's certainly not a controversial position that's a position held by close to 50 percent if not 50 percent right. of the u.s population and probably a higher percentage among married people yeah exactly <laughs> and so this was considered enough to like cause a meltdown that the person shouldn't even be able to talk about free expression right right that view isn't even welcome yeah, uh, and they weren't on campus to talk about traditional marriage. They were on campus to talk about free, free expression, expression, which makes it particularly ironic what it happened. Does. Yes, but so the point is that I think that's the main driver: is that it's a uh, fish swimming in a sea of left-wing ideology, and uh, so there's the peanut analogy that uh, Jonathan Haidt makes. Do you know the uh, peanut no, analogy? So he loves this story in almost every talk he gives. Do you know Jonathan Haidt? I do. Yeah. In almost every talk he gives, he tells this story that, uh, so, there, you know, when you were a kid, did you ever eat a peanut butter sandwich? Sure. Now you can't bring a peanut butter sandwich to school uh, because someone might have a peanut allergy. It's, uh, and everyone's, you know, like super, super worried about peanut allergies. Do you have any children? I do. And have you heard about the peanut allergies and stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. They weren't allowed to do that. Uh, chocolate, you weren't allowed to bring chocolate as snacks uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to any sort of holiday parties in elementary school. Someone there. might be allergic to chocolate. Or, yeah. or it wasn't fair for the child who couldn't eat chocolate for the other children to eat chocolate in front of that child. I heard that excuse as well. But. It's interesting. Uh, but anyways, so Haidt talks about the this Israeli study. And so they have this... Israeli food, uh, like a snack food, that's corn puffs with peanut powder on the outside. Okay, so they take some number, I forget the exact uh, number in the study, of uh, babies that have been genetically identified to have a high risk of developing a peanut allergy because there are certain genetic markers that are clear and that, you know, are tested for. Okay, and they take, uh, they take half of them. And they follow the normal advice, which is don't ever expose your child to nuts. Don't eat nuts yourself because it could get into the child through the milk. Uh, and basically keep nuts completely out of this child. The other one, they say, uh, give the child this, eat nuts yourself, and give the child this peanut snack 
on this schedule. And the result was, I forget the exact numbers, but a large fraction of the ones who followed the traditional advice were determined to be allergic to peanuts at age five, and a very small fraction of the ones who ate the peanut snack were determined to be allergic at age five through the traditional test where, you know, like they right. expose you or whatever. And so the point is that if you uh, are never exposed to peanuts, you're much more likely to have an allergic reaction, a meltdown, which is what happened at Yale. They had an allergic reaction. And so because these they're not students, being exposed enough to these because these students ideas. have never been exposed to uh, centrist ideas, they cause an allergic apoplectic reaction when they see them. Whereas if the students had, you know, if 50% of the students were, you know, believed in traditional marriage and they could talk to their colleagues and realize like, oh, you know, this isn't a crazy perspective and here are the reasons that they think that and stuff, then they wouldn't freak out when someone came on campus and, and said that. So I think that the primary driver of this stuff is, um, is the fact that the politics has gotten so skewed on campus. Sure. And so you, you see that it's happened at Yale, it's happened at MIT. Uh, how is the University of Chicago uh, these days, your, your, your home institution? Well, okay, so in my case, they backed me up. And in fact, there's, uh, there's so Eric Kaufman is a social scientist who estimates that three in 10,000 faculty each year are subjected to a cancellation attack. Three in 10,000. I would have thought higher. Yeah. And so three in 10,000. And that means there, there's an attempt to deplatform them, to have their papers withdrawn, or to get them fired. Okay. And so if a typical large university has about 1,000, a couple thousand faculty, that means every few years you would expect one to have a cancellation attack. These are large, prominent cancellation attacks. Okay. And so uh, the important point is that has a huge and outsized impact. So everybody a sees those. Effect. Yeah, everybody sees those and gets scared. And that's why when you ask students and faculty, so many of them say they're self-censoring. It's usually 50 to 80%, depending on the exact survey. Sure. It's, but it's only three in 10,000 who suffer a cancellation mm-hmm. attack. And there have been four in the past 10 years at UChicago. Mastriepi, Dario Mastriepi, Rachel Fulton Brown twice, Harold Uleg once, and me twice. And so that's I'd six have, I would add Jeff Stone at the law school. He, he, he had, a, he had the, an episode here the in N-word the last... Thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but he never actually had a cancellation attack. Okay. He just agreed to do what they wanted him to do. Gotcha. Uh, stop, stop using the word in his lecture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so... Uh, so anyways, of those people, all of them are still on the faculty. So that's better than a lot of places. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good sign. That's a good starting uh, point. But w- sort of how they fared is different. You know, I feel still s- supported by the university and, you know, like at least tolerated. There's a lot of people angry at me, but they haven't tried to really come after me. And the president, the former president of the university, Zimmer, issued a statement the first time that was that my first cancellation attack, which was actually fall of 2020, uh, saying, you know, our faculty are free to express themselves on anything and we don't punish them. And that pretty much put an end to the calls to get me fired, et cetera, et cetera. And so... It, yeah, it's amazing how uh, one person standing up against... I started to say the mob, but it really is 5, 10, 15 people sometimes. It's not that, yeah. that large a mob. 
uh, can, can really well, stop in my these case, things in their tracks. I had a letter of denunciation signed by about half the grad students in my department. Wow. And so it really was a lot. But, but again, you don't know which ones of them were pressured into doing it. Right. You know, which I know there were a few agitators and I know that the grad students were scared because they told me. Sure. And so a lot of people who signed it probably were pressured into it. That almost sounds like the end of Dead Poets Society where the students were forced to sign a petition against Professor Keating. In any case, what, what do you, our listeners, think about all this? Leave us a comment on our website if you'd like. We'd love to hear from you, nclalegal.org. We'll be right back. <laughs> 